Hello and welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. This is Videocast 37 and Podcast Episode 27 for the week ending July 2nd, 2020. So I'd like to start out this week as we always do and just talk about some of the media spots. This morning I was on Cheddar TV. I'd like to thank Kristen Scholler, who's in the photo, uh, Baker Machado, Jill Wagner, and Francesca Conti for having me on to discuss the jobs report at 8.30 a.m. That was fun to uh, take the live data and talk about it on the fly. Um, we talked about, um, it was just, it just absolutely blew the doors off, uh, 4.8 million jobs, uh, brought the unemployment rate down to 11.1. We're going to go into some further detail, but wanted to thank them for having me on this morning. You can play that right here at the website or click on featured on at the top of hedgefundtips.com. It's about a five minute segment. Uh, next, I'd like to thank Larry Menti uh, for having me on Sunday. It was actually pre-recorded, but it aired on Sunday on uh, NJNN. Larry is a legend in the business, has over 27 Emmys, and we're talking about the long-term outlook on this one Sunday. Have a listen if you haven't had a chance to check that one out. Thank you, Larry, for having me on uh, or having me back. And then a couple of Reuters quotes this week. I'd like to take uh, thank Devik Jain and Powell Goraj. This one was earlier in the week. It said, quote, the market is taking a tremendous amount of comfort in the fact that as long as we contain the virus, the economy is going to recover very fast. And you're going to see cyclical start, stocks start to rally again, as they always do coming out of recessions. And then a quote from this morning for Reuters. Also, thank you to Devik Jain and Powell Goraj. Uh, it said they asked me about earnings, second quarter earnings coming up. I said people are less concerned about earnings than they are about the guidance and what companies say about the next six months and about 2021. And that's going to be the key. A lot of people are looking through the short term downturn from this natural disaster called coronavirus and looking forward to what's going to happen next. Next thing we had uh, this week was the stress test second part on Monday where banks came out and talked about uh, what they were going to do with their dividends. The theme was the same. They were all well capitalized for the most severe scenario, which we have not hit with the coronavirus. Um, tier one capital ratios were fine. Capital buffers were all great across the board. Uh, but as we discussed last week, there is a cap on last four quarter earnings average. You can't pay a dividend higher than that. So Wells Fargo will have to cut and they came out and said as such, that's the good news. So, uh, but the bad news is they didn't say how much the consensus, uh, that we ha are seeing, I think it was on Bloomberg was 20 cents down from 51 cents. Uh, per share and I did a little note right after it on Monday night because a lot of people think that's bad news um, The last time Wells Fargo cut their dividend was actually on March 6th 2009 so while they announced a dividend cut uh, Was coming they didn't say how much so we may have not have put in that um, full magnitude of the bad news so the stock can actually start to sell the rally by the news. Uh, it does seem like it's stabilizing here, but we'll see. They report on July 14th, so we'll either have an opportunity to pick up a few more shares at a good price uh, ahead of that, or it'll start to move um, ahead of that, just saying, you know, at some point the bad news is baked in. 
and the interesting parallel that I pointed out from 2009 was that um, when they cut, so in this instance, it would be a cut from 51 cents a share down to 20 in on March 6, 2009. So that would come on July 14th. On March 6, 2009, they cut from 34 cents a share to 0.05. What's interesting is people are worried about effectively the same thing now as they were then. It's just a different form. And they were worried about credit reserves. Back in 2009, it was foreclosures and uh, collateralized debt. Now it's uh, consumer receivables, some bank debt, etc. Um, but the story is the same. People extrapolate short-term bad news for persistent forever bad news and it's just never the case um and what happened in 2009 was from the day that they cut the dividend they actually put the cut and i included the form 8k announcement uh and a link to the sec filing was the stock actually rallied 256% over the next two months. It went from about $5 and change to $20 and change. And what's also a unique parallel between this current timing for the banks and uh, March 2009 was that um, Wells Fargo was trading at about at a big discount to book. So the book value at the time was about um, $16 uh, in 2008. It was actually 1994 in 2009 when they cut the dividend. So let's call it $20 a share. Well, sure enough, the stock rallied from $5 right back up to book in those two months. And that's usually where banks want to trade. If they get overvalued sometimes in a euphoric period. They can trade at a multiple of book. But usually uh, if it's trading at a discount to book, you buy and if it's trading at a huge premium, you know, you, you shave it off. And um, the current book right now has about doubled since over the last 10 years. So it's uh, about $41 in 2020 and we're trading at 25. So if past is any prologue, when that dividend cut is finally announced, the bad news is baked in, we could see a rally potentially back to book. Uh, which would be in the neighborhood of 40, a little more than $40 and, and, uh, and potentially an overshoot. That's not to say that that will necessarily happen. It's just to give you the psyche that what is often feared the most when it comes to past is a catalyst to actually break free. So it's trading in a range. It's just grinding sideways. Then they finally announce it. So we got a taste of it on Monday. Maybe we'll rally ahead of earnings, but more likely after they cut the dividend on the 14th is when the stock can finally start to get going. So that's Wells Fargo. Uh, I loved, absolutely loved this quote of the week from Evercore. ISI put out a note on June 30th. They said, wear a mask if you ever want to see bank buybacks again. <laughs> so I couldn't have said it better. Um, you know, that was that was something else. Um, okay, so let's get to the article of the week. It is a holiday weekend, so I want to get you guys all the information as fast as you as I can, uh, but uh, not cut corners to make sure that we're properly prepared for the week coming up. The theme song for the stock market this week was Motley Crue's Home Sweet Home, Stock Market and Sentiment Results. And I love this song because it so aptly describes what the stock market has been doing. 
and the lyrics from Motley Crue that are appropriate were, and I'm coming off this long and winding road, which we've been on for three plus months. I'm on my way, I'm on my way home sweet home. And I'm defining home sweet home as new market highs in the S&P 500, which we haven't seen since pre-COVID in February. Um, like we discussed last week, how the market ripped over 35% in the first 35 days uh, following the March 23rd lows. And we effectively went nowhere in the past two months since then. As of last week, we basically made 0% gains in two months. And this week we uh, climbed a few percent, starting to make our way, climb our way back up to those new highs, uh, potentially uh, for this year for sure. And uh, the Nasdaq's actually already accomplished that feat in, in making new highs. So, uh, as I mentioned, I put a video in this note, uh, the Larry Menti video from uh, Sunday. We discussed the road to recovery. You should definitely listen in. It takes a long-term view, and he asked really good questions. It's no wonder he got 27 Emmys. You should also check out the Cheddar interview from today to get more granularity on the jobs report, the implications, the COVID cases, and the psyche around that, which we'll walk into. I do want to start with the ADP report, though, from yesterday, because one of the things I mentioned in the Cheddar interview this morning was the saying, the last shall be first, <laughs> the famous biblical quote. Uh, and that's exactly what we saw in ADP. Not only did we get a revision from negative uh, 2.76, which was reported last month, uh, turned out to uh, revise up to plus 3.0 million. So that was a 5.7 million job uh, payroll difference. But we also got not only plus 3 million for um, last month, but 2.4 million this month. And where were all the gains? Well, the last shall be first. It was in the hardest hit sectors, which was exciting to see because that also affects, you know, one of the narratives in the last three months was that minorities were disproportionately affected by by COVID. And in a few interviews, I said, yes, that's unfortunate. And it's just related to the jobs that they held. So for instance, when, you know, uh, you have a huge hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, it hits a different demographic of worker when they have to shut down the rigs. In this case, it hit leisure and hospitality, which gained 961,000 in the ADP report. It hit construction, which hit, gained 394,000. And it hit trade, transportation, and utilities, which gained 288,000. So that was great to see. Um, next, you had manufacturing jobs. Uh, I'm sorry, the um, US ISM manufacturing PMI. It hit over 50, a 52.6 reading, which was the highest reading since the April 2019 report. That's really off the charts and unexpected. Um, consumer confidence blew away expectations. Uh, expectations were 91.8. Uh, came in at 98.1, up from 85.9 last month. You can see it in this uh, table here. Pending home sales completely through the roof was expected to be up 18.9% after falling 21% last month, but instead crushed expectations at plus 44.3%. The other thing we've covered is the S&P had its best quarter in two decades, rebounding 20%. Uh, from the beginning of the quarter till the end of the quarter. 
For most people, that is an excuse to sell because uh, the present day backward looking data is not uniformly at pre-COVID levels. So in other words, not everything like uh, the uh, ISM manufacturing uh, is back at pre-COVID levels. As a matter of fact, many data points are not yet back at pre-COVID levels. So people think it's time to sell. But if you look at the post-World War period, we looked at two sources, Ryan Dietrich and um, Keith Lerner from SunTrust. They basically came to the same conclusions. The last time you had uh, the top 10 quarter returns post-World War II, the next quarter return, uh, Ryan Dietrich has it at the average at 9.5%. Um, and Keith has it at 8%. I think this is just a rounding error thing when I looked through it earlier this week. So let's call it, you know, uh, cut it in half, you know, an eight and a half, eight point seven five percent average gain the next quarter after rec after a record quarter uh, is the instinct, which gets us to what we've been talking about, home sweet home, new highs on the S&P 500. Uh, order in an ordinary scenario, like 1918, I think it took about one, you know, the Spanish flu, it took about a year and a half plus to get back to new highs on the S&P. 1987, after the abrupt 30 some odd, 30 some odd percent crash, it took about, I think, a year and a half, two years. That would be normal, but we've had unprecedented intervention, liquidity, stimulus, et cetera. As long as we contain the virus, which we they've taken actions after the close today we're gonna discuss, uh, we're gonna be off to the races. Uh, last week, when all the data was negative, the sentiment was negative, and the market action was negative, surprise, uh, we said, hey, don't bet against science. There are silver bullets here. This week, we got a number of silver bullets. First off, and you can go back and review that here on, on the article, um, we had Pfizer come out. Pfizer's a non-promotional com non company. They're not going to come out like a small cap biotech and try to taunt something to pump up the stock um, and, and, and sell stock like we saw with other companies in, in uh, past weeks. Pfizer's a real deal. Unless they've got something, they're going to keep their mouth shut. They came out this week and said that their Pfizer BioNTech vaccine phase one and two, 24 patients generated neutralizing antibodies at levels 1.8 to 2.8 patients with COVID-19. See early positive results for vaccine candidate. So Pfizer was up, the market was up, and that's a big deal because it's a credible company and they have manufacturing power. Also, the Oxford Project came out with positive uh, vaccine uh, data as well. Says they vaccinated uh, 8,000 people in Britain and they're already in phase three. This is with AstraZeneca and the Oxford scientist. Uh, they're excited. They don't seem to have the optimism about getting it done this year. They think it's more of a Q1 thing, whereas I believe Pfizer and some of the others are are. Uh, already producing at a loss, you know, expecting their their drug to pass, in which case we would have it before the end of the year. Lots of shots on goal like we covered last week. Some are starting to get through the five hole. And for the hockey followers listening in, you know what that means. Next, um, so we don't have the silver bullet yet, but we're getting closer and the data is getting better quicker than expected. Uh, another point, the consumer's strong. What's interesting is as the government balance sheets have gone up around the world and gotten worse in a sense, 
Um, the consumer balance sheets have dramatically improved. This chart is uh, uh, household debt service payments as a percent of disposable personal income. This is at an all-time multi-decade low. The other aspect uh, that's related to this is cash kings. The amount in US checking accounts has exploded in the last three months. You can see here it's basically uh, gone to five trillion from about three trillion just a few years ago and from one and a half trillion call it great financial crisis so it's you know up 200 some odd percent since the great financial crisis and it's up a trillion just in the last handful of weeks so tons of cash uh and we started to see it as people are getting out there and doing things one cases are going up we'll talk about that that's manageable we can deal with that we've done it in the northeast but uh this cash is going to get put to work and really create some uh massive massive recovery quickly and uh, President Trump signaled yester uh, to yesterday, I believe, in a Fox Business interview on the claim and countdown. He's all for masks. This is going to be a critical component. We covered at, at infinitum last week why it's our weapon. We went into the whole debate about being warriors. You got to use your weapons. It's not about being weak. It's about being strong and crushing and starving the enemy. If they're no host, it cannot proliferate. So Trump said he felt like John Wayne when he wore a mask. I guess he wore a black mask. He thought it, it looked great. Uh, Pence was out making the rounds saying, wear your masks. So they're finally on board. And, and now it's like, if we want the economy to fly, when we go out to crowded indoor places, we stick a mask on, GDP will fly, jobs will fly, every, everyone will make a ton of money. So um, it's become a thing like, rather than... Um, you know, feel like it's something not uh, strong. It actually is something strong. It's the weaponry that we have in this war against the invisible enemy. Right now, it's like a little musket. Soon, we're going to get the tanks and the missiles. That's called the treatments and the vaccines. And then we're going to completely eradicate the enemy. But that's a few months off. In the meantime, let's keep the momentum that we've built with all these economic data beating by wearing the mask, starving the hell out of this thing. If there are no hosts, the, the, the virus can't proliferate. The way you uh, don't give it any hosts is you wear the mask so it can't find new hosts. Okay, um, next, COVID cases. This was really interesting. Um, and it came from the New York Times. So everyone's been talking about 125,000 deaths and you know that's a big number and et cetera, et cetera. I didn't realize, I knew a high percentage, but 43% of the deaths were from nursing homes and long-term care facilities nationwide. So basically, you back out those deaths, which were just a train wreck, they were mismanaged, they didn't know what they were doing, it was new, it wasn't intentional, it was just you know problematic. And you're looking at 70,000 deaths. A bad flu season is 59,000. I think we had 59,000 deaths either this year or probably it was last year because we overlapped with coronavirus. But if you look at the CDC website, that's an average year of flu, 59,000 people die from the flu. Now we're at 70,000 from something much, much worse. It's not to belittle it. This is, you gotta take this deadly serious. And I said it on Cheddar this morning. You know, these spike ups you're seeing in the Sun Belt, uh, California, Arizona, Texas, Florida, Georgia, uh, it's no different than what we saw in the tri-state area. We didn't wear masks in the beginning. That's why our cases went through the roof. We didn't know what the heck it was. We thought it was, the, 
whatever. We just didn't do it. Then the cases went crazy. People around us started to get affected. They lost jobs. They got sick. And some people died. All of a sudden, we realized this is serious. Let's put our masks on. Let's go about our business, not hide in the closet, but actually go out and about, but wear our mask when we're inside and we're around people and we can't social distance. Um, and our cases, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, the epicenter, are absolutely plummeting. They're falling through the floor while you're seeing spikes in the Sun Belt. The same thing will happen with those people. And I understand why they don't want to wear masks. They're uncomfortable. They look, you know, it's different. You like to see people's beautiful smile when you interact with them. So for the next three months, until we get our missiles and tanks, vaccines and treatments, let's stick, stick the masks on. They'll do it as their cases spike. They'll get scared like we did. They'll stick them on. They'll crush the virus because there will be no more hosts. And these numbers will continue to beat every single week so long as we take the action. And we got a little help. We're going to have a surprise at the end, some, some things they announced after the bell that will help this cause and help us win. But leaving that aside, the big areas that were... Um, in fear, uh, came down. So the, the spike areas came down from the 27th to the 30th. I know for a fact, I just looked up the new data. I think California and Florida are down, but Texas and Arizona are up. So they're starting to acknowledge there's a problem and taking action to fix the problem. The other issue why deaths continue to plummet, 43% were nursing homes and long-term care facilities, leaving us with 70,000. But the people that are getting it, the average case, which I also covered on Cheddar, has gone from 65 years old down to 35. So most of those people aren't dying. If you get it and you're 35, you're probably going to beat it. There are exceptions, so you don't want to be willy-nilly about it. Take it very seriously. And best case, don't get it. Just wear a mask. Um, that will dramatically improve your odds of not getting it, even if you happen to be around it by mistake. So... Um, Okay, so Trump said um, that he's all for masks. Um, he doesn't wear it because all the people around him are tested, but he has worn it, and he felt like John Wayne when he wore it. I think that's a good message. I think Pence being out there talking about masks was a good message. And the other thing is, you know, some people say, no one can force me to wear a mask. I'm in a free country. I'm going to be free. I'm. Let me tell you something. If you want to talk about freedom, you're talking to the wrong guy because I'm all for freedom. I'm like Mr. Freedom. However... I also like GDP growth, and I also like those you know, 20 million people who lost their jobs to be able to get back to their jobs so we can rock and roll and take advantage of this stimulus versus double dipping. That said, and I think everyone else wants that for their 401k, for their jobs, for their economy, for their families, and everyone else. So this is just, you got to think of the mask not as a weak thing, but as a weapon to crush the enemy that's caused us. This, this enemy, COVID, has stolen our freedoms, and we have to beat it. What has it stolen from us? It's stolen our, you know, restaurants in large part, travel in large part, concerts. You can't go to a concert. They are all delayed. I wanted to go to Kenny Chesney. I had Kenny Chesney tickets. I had Taylor's uh, with Old Dominion. By the way, I love Old Dominion uh, at the Meadowlands in August. It's delayed a year. Uh, that's a freedom that was taken from me because of COVID. So I want to crush this enemy. Uh, we had uh, uh, Taylor Swift tickets for uh, for the girls in uh, we were going to go up to Boston. We had Yankee Red Sox tickets that weekend we were going to do. Um, and businesses can't open in the way that they want to. So those freedoms are already taken. The way we take our freedoms back is we crush 
the virus and the way we crush the virus is we don't give it any more hosts. So if you want to be a warrior, put on your mask for the next few months. That's the best weapon we got until we get the uh, uh, missiles and tanks in the form of treatments and vaccines. Next, earnings. Uh, they have stabilized. Uh, 2021 are still holding strong at 163.45, which is why I said that on the Reuters quote. People don't care about the dip in the short term. The market already corrected 35% in anticipation of the horror show that uh, Q2 earnings are going to be. And uh, now it's looking forward. Now, we traded up to 3,400 on the S&P on 163.02 last year. We can potentially trade higher than 3,400 because rates have since come down. And they may be underestimating, provided we can get the Sun Belt under control with the cases. With that 10 trillion stimulus aid and liquidity, probably another trillion on the way. They passed a $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill in the House. I, obviously, that's going to look a lot different by the time it gets through the Senate, but more, there's more on the way. The other thing that President Trump said during the interview on the claim and countdown was that he was all for direct stimulus payments, maybe another round of checks, it seemed like, or some way to get more money to more people, like, like uh, was sent on the first round. They had checks of... Uh, uh, $1,200 and $500 for kids for the people who needed it the most, something like that. Plus, he also wanted to make an announcement about minimum wage. Uh, my sense is he wasn't um, putting that out there if he was going to lower minimum wage. That would just be something he would do quietly. My sense is that he wants to increase minimum wage to help millions of people, uh, which would be a really good thing because the people who... Uh, get an increase in minimum wage, have the highest propensity to spend 100% of it in the economy. It's great for them. It's great for the economy. It's great for everybody. Short term, small business, it's tough. But by and large, if you have tens of millions of people making more money, ultimately it comes back to you multiplied. So I think that could be a positive thing at the right time right now. And we'll see what happens in coming weeks with President Trump's teaser on the claim and countdown yesterday. Next, yield curve control. By the way, short week, tons of stuff to talk about. Yield curve control came out in the Fed minutes again. This was done in world uh, post-World War II. The debt to GDP ratio got up to 120%. We're going to get probably close to that because of this war with COVID, the amount that we've had to spend to stimulate as they had to in World War II. That's the bad news. The good news is five years later after World War II, they were back to 63% debt to GDP. I think we'll grow our way out of this just as they did that time. And what's great about yield control from a guy who loves banks uh, is that so far they're talking about tamping down the three-year and five-year. They've already got control of the short end. So that would effectively mean they're going to steepen the yield curve and pour buckets of cash into banks' bottom lines. Why is that good for Main Street? Because it represents banks' incentives with the spread-widening net interest margin between what they pay for capital and what they lend capital. Uh, they will have no choice but to lend money like crazy to juice the recovery to Main Street, to consumers, uh, which will make them tons of money, will make Main Street tons of money, and will accelerate the recovery. So I like this concept as long as they stay at the short end. Uh, obviously, I could see them doing some activity at the long end of the curve. If and only if lending rates became too onerous due to just the short-term debt-to-GDP ratio, that was the initial idea behind it. 
post-World War II. But my sense is there's enough demand globally for yield and safety that the long end will take care of itself. They can just focus on the short end and the three-year and five-year, steepen the curve, reliquify the banks, and uh, get credit growth going to, me, to Wall Street so we can just rocket ship out of this. The other aspect of uh, helping cyclicals, I put up a chart from 200 years, two decades worth of the value factor drawdowns, value versus growth. I have no idea where two centuries investments got this data. I'm sure they weren't pitching uh, growth factor ETFs in 1826, but uh, I'll assume that this is accurate data. It looks about right based on the years in the 20th century that I have some knowledge of. 19th century, I'm good, but not great on market history, uh, but pretty good. Long story short, we are in a position right now where the disequilibrium between value and growth uh, is at levels not seen since Warren Buffett's teacher, Ben Graham, and first employer, Ben Graham, um, made his killing. He had his investment partnership, i.e. hedge fund, from 1936 to 1956. That was a year when, uh, that was a period when um, the disequilibrium like we're seeing now reversed itself and for decades uh, value outperformed growth and that's what created all the billionaires you know Lee Cooperman, Mario Gabelli, Warren Buffett the whole lot of them were all from this school and and once this reversed from 1932 Ben Graham started his fund in 1936 he compounded at 20 percent a year for 20 straight years on average um, we could be in a once in a lifetime generational opportunity like Ben Graham and Warren Buffett were uh, when these factors started to outperform coming off historic lows uh, and the last two times again started in 1932, 1904, before that uh, I'm taking this data for what it's worth, 1862 and 1841. So if that's the case, which would be nice because the um, can't start a fire without a spark. The spark is cyclicals outperform coming out of uh, recessions. We just had a recession, backward-looking Q1 and Q2. Data is getting better because we're in recovery. They'll start to declare a recession in coming weeks. Again, that will be yesterday's news. Market will start to look forward to 2021. Cyclicals will start to perform once there's a taste that we really have a vaccine and the recovery is going to be faster than, than uh, expected. And uh, this could be a multi-decade uh, scenario like Ben Graham, like Warren Buffett, like Cooperman, like all these guys, Icon, made their fortunes in the value factor as a function of uh, the climate, as a function of rates, as a function of a uh, number of factors that all came together to create the ideal environment. And, uh, and this recovery cyclical recovery will be the first step and then we'll be able to see if there's going to be decades follow through as we've seen historically coming off these uh, subdued levels so that was a really useful bit of information uh, we covered the wells fargo dividend cut cap and um, what it, what looks like bad news and once it's finally announced could be the turning point and uh, for a long-term move in in the whole sector as is usually the case coming out of recessions, like we saw the yield curve steepening in 2009 and 2003, which we've just seen in the last two months. The 210 spread uh, hasn't steepened this quickly 
since those two periods, w periods which preceded multi-year uh, rallies in banks and financials. Another point of note on the cyclical side, uh, the chart I put out a couple weeks ago about the long-term OPEC plus deal and the impact it would have on the supply demand imbalance. We'd start to go into uh, drawdowns in by late June. That started to happen. This was the biggest draw we saw yesterday in, since January of this year. So in half a year, it was the biggest draw. And that this was the inflection in the chart by Rystead Energy that I posted here on the site. So if you're listening on a podcast, go to hedgefundtips.com, scroll down on the right side, look for most popular post. It'll be the Motley Crue article, and uh, you can see this chart and the expectation of the continued draws for the next year and a half, so long as the OPEC Plus deal stays intact, coupled with the recovery and the demand you're already, you've already seen out of China. There are a few years, a few months ahead of us. Their peak cases were early February. Our peak cases were early April. And now on to the short term. This was another bullish aspect of the market. The sentiment, despite the move up, has stayed very skeptical. And the market continues to climb a dramatic wall of worry. And that was evidenced in the AAII sentiment creep down to 22.15. Anything in the low 20s has historically been a contrary buy point when you have that few bullish people, percentage of uh, survey participants, and the bearishness stayed elevated, came down a hair, but it was still up at 45. When you see those type of extremes, you're paid to be a buyer versus a seller. It's not always the exact bottom. It can go lower before it reverses, but um, it's very hard for people to comprehend after 35, 40% move that the bearishness is such that it warrants pushing higher. The, the pain is up when people are this skeptical. It's also confirmed by the fear and greed index. We hit a low of basically zero in March. We have not got anywhere near extreme euphoria, euphoria yet, which is an area where I'd look to take off some risk uh, to shave some profits. That would be between 80 and 100 on the fear and greed, which is a compilation of seven some odd indicators. Um, you can Google it for the individual factors that go into it. But um, sometimes it's better to just pick the fruit than study the roots and just know where it makes sense to be a net buyer and where it makes sense to be a net seller. It's still stuck in the middle at 49. So it's gone from zero to 49. It's gone nowhere near euphoric. At euphoria, we would look to be taking profits on things in the middle of the range. This is just more pain to push higher in our view. And it's been stuck here for, for a number of weeks. And that's been evidenced after the 35% rally. The market did nothing for two months until the recent week we started to creep back up again, hopefully towards home sweet home. Uh, National Association of Active Investment Managers came down a bit from last week after the market corrected 2.5%. It shook a lot of people out. They'll have to get back in probably after this week. And I don't know if that prints tonight, but um, you could just Google it and see if that's come up a bit. Next is um, the close. The message for the week is we're very constructive in the intermediate term. There's no change here because there's no, been no real change in the market for 60 days. We'll take advantage of any additional buying opportunities and laggard cyclical names. For instance, if we get any buy opportunities, further buy opportunities in banks before earnings, we might take, take further advantage of them. Um, laggards, we're not buying the things that are up. We're buying the things that are just starting to participate and... Um, uh, and, and taking advantage of that. As I've said, we're old school. We like to buy low and sell high. 
Next, um, Bank of America, which their stuff has been great in the last year and a half or so. Uh, very impressive. So they put a thing out here called uh, Three Reasons Why Bank of America Says to Be Bullish on U.S. Stocks, Including Economic Surprise Index re uh, Reaching Record High. So here's the Economic Surprise Index. Um, it's off the charts, okay? So there it is. It's up to 184. Uh, at the trough, it hit negative 140-ish. And it's it hasn't been this high uh, all the way for over 20 years and maybe ever, okay? So uh, the surprises to the upside are dramatically exceeding expectations. You only get in this neighborhood coming out of recoveries, uh, the beginning of recoveries like in early 2009, a lot of similarities to, to that, guys. Uh, they had the rally uh, off the lows 50% by August. Uh, we're at, you know, I guess 30, high, probably about 40% plus right now. So we probably have a little more juice. Uh, same thing 2011, you got in the neighborhood. Again, they're recoveries after big corrections and slowdowns. So let's uh, remove this chart. Okay, let's see how I can get rid of this. Ah, there it is. Okay, so what they're saying about the economic surprise index, uh, which I really liked, the surprise in economic data should flow through to corporate earnings. The bank said investors should go through a similar phase with economic data as they do with second quarter corporate earnings, which are just around the corner. Clearly, investors expect to see horrific numbers overall. But why would the better than expected economic out outcome not also flow through to at least better than feared corporate earnings, B of A said? Companies should be excited to give to guide the positive trends they are seeing in the second half of the year, according to the bank. So that was Bank of America via Business Insider. Uh, I liked I really liked that commentary. The second thing they put out. Bank of America was Wall Street's bullishness gauge spikes the most in two years, signaling a 11% gain for the S&P 500 within a year. Now, this is purely a quantitative thing. Their uh, sell side indicator gained to 55.8 from 54.9. So they look back at the data and... They also said the dividend yield of the S&P 500 is now at a multi-decade record multiple of bond yields. Okay, in other words, Tina, there's nowhere else to go. And whereas the sustainability of dividends has come into question amid the recession, we think a significant portion of the S&P 500 offers sustainable dividend yields. So in other words, you know, if the 10 years yielding 63 bips and you could get, you know, two, two, two and a half percent dividend yield plus in, in some of these, even with, you know, Wells Fargo, we, we talked about they're going to cap or cut. Um, so let's say they cut it in half. They, their yield goes from seven and a half down to 3.75. If they trim it a little more, you're still getting a 3% yield if they cut it to the bare bones, uh, which, you know, is uh, four or five times what you're getting in the 10 year. So plus you get capital appreciation because it's trading at uh, a huge discount to book at $25 and change, book is 40 and change. Eventually, that will revert to its long-term mean, which is to trade a, a little bit of a book. So, great commentary from Bank of America. Moving forward, more economic data. 
uh, silver bullets. So China, CanSino, approved a vaccine that they believe they already have for the military to use already. Um, this is from CanSino Biologics. Again, last week, everything was dim. I said, don't bet against science. So China's got one for their military. It seems like we'll see if that works. Next, uh, the remdesivir, uh, US bought the entire, basically the global stock of uh, Gilead's remdesivir. That's for injection. They're also gonna be doing a um, breathable one that they're working on this summer. If they do a breathable one, that would give access to a ton of people. Moving on, uh, not only were our data off the charts, but China's manufacturing, we talked about ours at 52.8. China's Caxon manufacturing PMI hit a six-month high. Remember, they peaked in February, so they're well back at pre-COVID levels on the manufacturing index. We are also seeing it in transports, which have just been in the doghouse forever. FedEx blew away expectations. Uh, stock jumped huge. And they um, hit, let's see, they earned uh, $2.53 a share compared with expectations of $1.58. So it's really, really valuable to see the transport start to get a huge bid and start to beat expectations. This is just a sign of pure economic activity. That's a good thing. Um, next, uh, just to run through some of the data here, uh, we had, um, so the unemployment rate dropped down to 11.1 from 13.3. On the show, I said at this, on Cheddar, I said at this rate, we'll be in single digits again by Q4, which could be really, really good. Not a whole lot more to go. Um, the U6 unemployment rate, that is the discouraged workers who have stopped looking. That came down a full three percentage points. That was really, really positive to see. Uh, private uh, non-farm payrolls up 4.8 million compared to last month, 2.6 million compared to expectations, 3 million. Manufacturing up huge. Last month up 250, this month up 356. Uh, initial jobless claims were down from last month, a little bit above expectations. So they were 1.48 last month. They were 1.42 this month. Continuing claims were uh, at 19.29. So that number is a little bit, that, that one needs to get under control. That's probably related to some of the spikes and the minor shutdowns around the country, which they're taking quick action on. And I'll discuss that in a minute. Uh, average hourly earnings year on year are up 5%. That's good to see. Um, that means on balance, people at the lowest pay levels are getting more money. Uh, vehicle sales were up, uh, exceeded expectations, up about a million month on month. Um, we had the huge uh, crude draw, which we already discussed. Uh, PMI, we discussed crushed expectations. Uh, manufacturing PMI, consumer confidence, beat expectations, pending home sales blew it out of the water. And I think we've covered pretty much all the data that we need to cover for that. Baltic Dry Index was very, very interesting. It tracks the rates for ships ferrying bulk, dry bulk commodities. Uh, rose 20 points or 1.1%. The index has gained 67% so far this year. 
driven mainly by a recovery in demand for iron ore from China as industrial activity picked up amid easing coronavirus-induced lockdowns. Again, we're three months behind them. They're driving the boat on this. Um, average daily earnings for cap sizes, which typically transport cargoes of... Uh, 170,000 to 180,000 tons, including iron ore and coal, rose by $438. Okay, so that's some just granularity. Here's the picture. You know, this is a level that we haven't seen since mid-2019. And uh, this is what you want to see coming out of a recovery like 2011. Um, and coming out of 2009, it got up to even well more elevated levels. So that's good news on the uh, global activity. Uh, TSA numbers. You know, this is again, you know, went from a low of 80,000 in mid-April to now it's over 600,000 pretty consistently, 625,000 down from 2.5. So we're getting there. Um, Mass will play a big role in, in cranking that up. Here's what I'm worried about. I've been talking to you about this for two weeks. The Fed has taken its foot off the gas on the balance sheet expansion. Unwise to do this before we get into the single digits. So in the last two weeks, they have... Um, ba, 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 ba. balance sheet shrank further. Okay, as of July 1st, the Fed's total balance sheet size declined by about 74 billion to 7.06 trillion versus 7.13 trillion a week earlier, led by a roughly $50 billion fall in outstanding currency swaps with foreign central banks. This was the fifth straight weekly drop and a signal of an easing US dollar crunch that had been an early feature of financial strains caused by the coronavirus. Repurchase agreements fell to 61 billion, the lowest since the Fed start restarted. So, okay, the short-term funding markets have have um, uh, unfrozen. That's a good thing. Mission accomplished on that side. But use that to uh, do asset purchases. Continue to force liquidity into the system until we get the jobs back, which Powell mentally knows because he always talks about this in earnest that he doesn't want to see the same structural problems, the U6, these forgotten men and women who never got back after the great financial crisis. He doesn't want to see that structural unemployment. And you've got to keep the foot on the gas when you have the momentum. You can't you know, barely get out of the gate and then for seven weeks keep lowering the balance sheet. That's why the market's gone nowhere. Get it back up to new highs so everyone gets this idea of a W you know, retest of the lows out of their mind, which makes businesses scared. If everything's at new highs, people will be hiring and eventually the data will catch up to the market as people get new jobs, etc. Get the put back on the pedal here and crank it until we get to six single digit unemployment and don't let these people linger too long because the longer they linger, the harder it will be to get back and get back into the workforce. That mistake was made in 2009. We don't have to make it again. So uh, this is my key worry, and hopefully uh, someone will, you know, they'll do something about this sooner than later. Earnings, industrials, we do one, we do a couple uh, sectors per week. Uh, for 2020, this sector's down only 4.3% in the last 60 days. That's actually a good thing. Uh, 2021 is what we care about at this point, uh, which is also on that table. Uh, here on exploration and production, we're down uh, I think negative estimates dropped um, negative 7.8% in the last 60 days. Uh, but again, that was during the worst period. So we'll start to look forward 
you know, to what, what do earnings look like at 40 and $50 a barrel versus what they looked like at zero. Uh, S&P earnings held up this week. This was published today by FactSet. And the two things that I've been uh, talking about, okay, so California actually started to come off the boil here. June 30th cases were 83.23. July 1st yesterday were 66.48. So that's good news. Florida, same thing. They peaked in June 27th at 95.92. And yesterday they were at 65.63. So that's uh, good news about uh, California and Florida. Texas and Arizona are still going up. However, the Texas governor stepped up to the plate after the bell. So they're taking actions and they're arming all the soldiers. We are the soldiers against this invisible enemy. And they made masks mandatory in public for the time being. It won't be forever. It's just until we crush this enemy. And the same thing with the uh, city of St. Louis did the exact same thing. And I'm sure if Texas did it, because they have smart economic growth in mind and re-employment, uh, many other states will follow suit because Texas are Texans are freedom-loving folk, and uh, they recognize the importance to business and jobs to do this, to put on your weapon and beat the virus until we get um, the, uh, the vaccines and, and better treatment. So that is very, very good news because if that becomes a thing, you know, Again, I said the exact same thing on Cheddar this morning. We did the same thing in the Northeast. No one wore a mask. Then we saw people die. Then we put our masks on and cases plummeted. Same thing will happen in all these states. They're now taking action and you're going to see these cases plummet very, very quickly. And in the meantime, the cases that are happening, the good news is they're amongst uh, much younger people who have low low morbidity rates, which which is a good thing. So... Uh, I believe that basically wraps it up for our holiday week. We've covered a tremendous amount in a short period of time. I wish you and your family a wonderful, happy 4th of July, happy Independence Day. Uh, Enjoy yourselves. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. It'll be on our normal Friday versus the holiday Thursday. Thanks for listening in and make it a great one.